Hello, my name is Dwayne Spearman, and I am the founder of Directional Ministries located here in Lynchburg, Virginia. This is a teaching ministry that is called to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. Good morning. Well, today we're going to, I hope, uh, we're going to pick up in Acts chapter number 1, and we're going to start in verse number 12, and um, I've got... Um, few notes here, uh, but let's just begin in verse number 12. Um, check out that transition there, isn't that pretty cool? Um, let's pray real quick huh, before we get started. Father, we love you and ask that you go before us today, that you bless the reading of your word, that Father you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to understand things that you're saying to us through your word. And Father, I just pray that you would bless all who hear this. May they have, may they be open, may they be receptive in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 1, verse number 12. Then returned they into Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. A Sabbath day's journey, as we discussed last time, is is slightly over a mile. And the thing that I wanted you to take note of, since I talked to you last time, is that um, they're still concerned with the law. If you look at the behaviors of the apostles, it, it really did not change after the ascension they still was very much concerned with the law we will see they still came and went in and out of the temple um, they were still distinctly jewish and um, i think many fail to see that um, nothing changed in regards to their behavior um, after the law i mean after the ascension of christ and then notice in verse number, <clears throat> verse number 13, um, <clears throat> and when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James, these all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about a hundred and and twenty. Luke now names the apostles present by name. Now, of course, uh, Judas, um, Judas is gone at this point. Um, altogether, uh, besides the 11 that were there, there were 120. Notice that it also says that they were in one accord in prayer and supplication. Now, I think that's very important uh, to know since some today will say that Peter 
is about to mess up. Um, but it clearly says they were all in one accord in prayer and supplication. And then notice with me in verse number 16. Um, it says, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost spake by the mouth of David before concerning Judas, who was guide to them that took Jesus. Now notice here that Peter, being the designated leader, points out from the Old Testament that Judas's office must be filled. Um, the scripture that Peter is pointing to in regards to this is actually in Psalms 109. In Psalms 109 is what Peter was referring to. Um, that brings a point that I, I've never thought of before. Uh, without, you know, you ever heard the old expression, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. That's true because there is no way you and I could have read Psalm 109 and found that at all. I mean, we would have never been able to see that. Now, I, for one, believe that all of the Psalms are prophetic in some way. Uh, I don't just believe they were a bunch of little um, rhymes that were simply praise and worship. I, you know, I've, I've heard this before. I've heard that, you know, the Jews say when the Messiah comes, he's not only going to tell us what the words mean, but he's going to tell us what the spaces between the words mean. I think every word that is in scripture is there for, for a reason, whether we understand it or not. And so Peter points out that this scripture uh, needs to be fulfilled. In other words, Judas needs a replacement. And he uses this scripture as the springboard for the justification um, of his actions. Um, and then look down in verse uh, number 17 and notice what he says. He says, for he was numbered with us and obtained part of this ministry. Um, a neat word study there. Uh, the word, um, the word where it says he was part of this ministry is where we, is the word kleros, which is where we get the word clergy. So yes, uh, Judas was actually in the, in the clergy. <laughs> that's a, that's a sermon for another day. Um, and then notice in verse number 18, now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all of his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem insomuch as that field is called in the proper tongue, Al-Kadama, which is to say the field of blood. Now, what's interesting about this is this verse, these verses are what we would call 
parenthetical verses and that they are just filling in the blanks in regards to the background. Um, but what's interesting here is uh, that the field spoken of here is not the actual field that was purchased by the priests. Um, in Matthew, uh, we can look over there, Matthew 27 and verse number uh, six and Matthew 27 and verse number six. I'll, I'll show you what I'm talking about. Matthew 27, verse number six. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore the field, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Um, so that field spoken of here is not the field that was purchased by the chief priests. Instead, the field appears to have been purchased by Judas himself. It says he bought it with the reward of iniquity. Um, so there appears to be two separate fields here that's being being spoken about so it's not the field that the priest bought it says judas bought this field if you look in the text and remember that judas was the dude that was holding the bag <laughs> judas was the, the 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 money holder and when you think about that i i find it pretty interesting uh, because um, if you're going to trust somebody with money in a group, you're going to take the most trusted individual with that money. Um, so Judas was apparently a, a very trusted person or, you know, they wouldn't have given him the bag. <laughs> Over in the book of John, um, let's see, John chapter number 12, and verse number six, it clearly says, this he said, not that he cared for, for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. So Judas carried the money. So Judas apparently purchased some kind of field with the reward of iniquity. Now that doesn't mean that he necessarily used the money they gave him because he apparently gave that back. Uh, Judas apparently had invested in some real estate. At least that's, you know, that's what I'm getting out of that. Um, I've never thought about that before until I started breaking that verse down. Um, so Judas apparently bought some, some money, bought a field with the money that he had stolen out of the bag. Um, it's also interesting, I got to know here, they are probably not the same also because the Matthew account says that he hung himself before the priests actually used the money to purchase the land. Um, so he used the money he before, or he hung himself before they actually purchased the land. Uh, interesting. We can see this in Matthew 27. And again, I've just always drawn the conclusion that that's kind of the way it happened. You know, they gave him money. Um, 
you know, and he used that money to buy them, but he gave the money back. So this is obviously another piece of land that Judas owned in Matthew 20, <clears throat> Matthew 27. And when the morning was come and the, all the chief priests and the elders took the people counsel against Jesus, put him to death. And when they had bound him, led him away, delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver. So He's given the money back, saying, I've sinned, and then I've betrayed innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to it. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Okay. And then the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It's not lawful for us to put them into the treasure because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. So just just kind of an interesting side note. These obviously were not the same fields that were being being spoken of here. And I've always found that kind of interesting because I've put the two together. Um, then notice in verse number 20. For it is written um, <clears throat> in the book of the Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. And again, this is a quote that Peter is making uh, from um, both Psalm 69, 25, and Psalm 109 again, verse number eight. And again, we have no way of knowing, we would have no way of knowing what these Psalms meant had it not been for Peter explaining them to us. And the same thing happens with the Apostle Paul and his epistles. He gives us clarity on Old Testament verses that there's just no way that we would have known. And then um, Acts chapter 1, verse 21, Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until that same day that he was taken up, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, uh, here we also learn that there were others. We learn that there were others who had been with them from the time of the baptism of Jesus by John until the day that he was taken up in the ascension so there were more than just the 12 obviously there was a, there was a group that followed them around probably that 120 um so they too um had been since the baptism of john and had already seen um the ascension the point is that however that it is that whoever would be chosen was to have a full knowledge of what was going on and must have been present for the 40-day kingdom seminar <laughs> in Acts chapter 1 in verse number 3. Because um, you'll remember that Christ, between his ascension and resurrection, there was a period in our ascension and, and well, resurrection and ascension, there was a 40-day period in which Jesus uh, spoke of things pertaining to the kingdom and I believe it's at that point that he filled them in on what was going on because as we spoke of early earlier they were absolutely blown away by the crucifixion 
uh, I think um, if you read the text, uh, maybe a little bit in between the lines, I mean, they had already gone back to fishing. I mean, they had um, given up. Um, so they thought it was over. Have you not heard? You know, he's dead. I mean, so during that 40-day seminar between his resurrection and his ascension, Christ gave him the backdrop. And they're saying here that whoever we choose must have been present for that. <clears throat> I got a little note here. Any witness could testify of his resurrection, but only one would take the office of Judas. Why? Because testifying of the resurrection was only one role of the office. The apostolic role included judging the tribes of Israel, and it could only be filled by the twelve. So... You got to kind of put yourself in what's going on here. Um, Jesus told them that they would sit upon the 12 thrones and judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And they felt a need, a justified need, I think a rightful need to fill that office so that Christ, when he returned, which they felt would be imminent, uh, they would be ready. Uh, to sit upon the 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So they felt like, you know, this needed to take place post-haste for them. Now, in verse number 23, and they appointed two. And of course, these two were Joseph and Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. Now, um, based on the qualifications, they, ch they chose two, which makes it sound like there were plenty more. Uh, but there were two that they picked out of that number. Um, it's interesting that these two have been with them again from the very beginning. Uh, but not every detail is recorded in scripture. Just those that lend themselves to the story. You know, why haven't we heard of Joseph called Barsabas and surnamed Justice and Matthias? Why haven't we heard of, Bar of Joseph and Matthias here? because they really had nothing to do with the story. Um, the Bible, while it is a history book, it's, I mean, it is full of history. It's not a history book. It's, you know, it's full of science, but it's not a science book. I mean, it just, you know, it's inerrant, it's infallible, but it only speaks to things that lend themselves to the story. And then in verse 25, and they prayed and said, Lord, Thou, Lord, wilt, which knowest the hearts of men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, and he might go to his own place. Now, it's important to note that the apostles were in one accord. Now, verse 14 says they were in one accord with prayer and supplication. And if you read these verses, this was not just an action of Peter by himself. And I'm building this case here because I'm gonna show you commentary after commentary that says Peter messed up here. That Peter got ahead of God, that, that God had already chosen the apostle Paul. And Peter got ahead of God and uh, erroneously chose Matthias. And that simply be not the case. 
because in verse 14, it says that they were in one accord. That means all of them together, one accord. And then based on their, and they based their decision on scripture. They actually went back into the Psalms, based their decision upon scripture. And after careful deliberation, okay, in verse number 23, you know, after careful deliberation, they chose these two with prayer. So this was not a, you know, a, uh, a moment that was to be taken lightly. Uh, these guys were moving uh, with direction, with determination. They felt they were fulfilling the scripture. They felt like they were doing what was next to prepare the way of the second coming so that they can rule with Christ because that was the promise. You remember James and John's mother asked him, you know, can my son sit on your left and your right? And he said, well, that's not mine to give you, you know, but they were looking for this kingdom. Now they are to sit upon the thrones, but they can't say only he sits at the right hand of the father. <laughs> um, and then notice in verse 26. And they gave forth their lots and the lot fell upon Matthias and he was numbered with the 11. Now, this I believe is a clear reminder that the apostles were living in a different dispensation. Why do I say that? <clears throat> they still cast lots. I mean, we would never condone this method of decision-making today. Um, I mean, casting lots to see what the will of God is. But understand, they were in a different dispensation. In, in their dispensation, Joshua divided the land by lot. Um, the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement was selected by Aaron by lot. The division of the Levites were divided by lot. And Jonah was determined to be the guilty party. <laughs> by lot. The casting of lots was never seen as simply luck or as poor judgment under the dispensation of the law. Okay. However, it is never again used after the Holy Spirit was given. Um, but they were under the dispensation of the law and they were still uh, following the Old Testament rules in regards to making a selection. Um, interestingly enough, even with all of that, because Matthias is never mentioned again in the Bible, it has led some to believe that the apostles made a hasty decision and got ahead of God. Um, however, the assumption to such an argument is that the apostolic ministry um, continues into the age of the church, which it does not continue into the age of the church. Um, and I say that looking at the Apostle Paul. <laughs> uh, the apostolic ministry stopped with Matthias. Um, so this assumption is made by those who, 
do not rightly divide the word of truth. And again, you're not dividing truth from error. You're dividing truth from truth. That's all truth. But there's division here. The ministry of the twelve was very different than the ministry of the apostle Paul. The twelve was to the nation of Israel. Paul is to the Gentiles. So again, it is a big deal as to who these guys chose. They did not choose Paul. They would never have chosen Paul. Number one, Paul wasn't even on the scene. Paul was not even saved at this point. So they, Paul was not even an option, which, you know, let me show you. Well, there's some commentaries here. I can actually show you some of them for your, for your, 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 your humor and delight, shall we say. Um, let me show you some of these. I'm going to flash up here. Right here. <clears throat> Examples of this can be found in practically any commentary. I actually uh, found these. First commentary. Whose name will be on the 12th foundation in the heavenly Jerusalem in Revelation 21.14? Matthias or Paul? That came from God Questions, which is uh, not the greatest source <laughs> <laughs> in my opinion, it's very generic. It's, um, but anyway, they go on to argue, uh, whether it would be Matthias or Paul. Uh, then the second commentary on the issue of the 13 apostles. And of course I, you know, there, it, it is true that Peter and company elected Matthias to replace Judas but not everything recorded in the Bible that individuals do is to be taken as ordained by God. Peter made his fair share of mistakes. <laughs> so these guys, again, they believe they're not rightly dividing scripture, uh, period. Um, and then the third one, whose names are on the gates? If we are to imagine that one of them will have the name Matthias, then who will be left out? Certainly not Paul, the last, but also the greatest of the apostles. So again, I mean, these folks believe that the apostle Peter made a mistake. Not only Peter, but all the others. Here's another one. Remember that the election of Matthias was held before Pentecost. After which Peter and his fellows are suddenly much more effective for God as one would expect with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Notice too that to elect Matthias they turn to the Old Testament device of casting lots. Something Jesus never did and something that is never authorized in the New Testament or practiced elsewhere again. Notice also that God did not communicate to Peter the need to get the new number 12. Are you tracking that? <laughs> these guys, these guys really believe that Peter, uh, messed up royally, uh, that he shouldn't have uh, done this. I actually have another one here. Um, the selection of Matthias Acts 1 15 through 26 by the apostles was made out of their desire to fill up the number 12, but it seems possibly they jumped the gun. Had they been patient and waited for a while, they would have seen the conversion of St. Paul and that he would have been a perfect replacement 
for Judas, rounding out the number 12. So, that's the way folks see it. <laughs> they see that uh, the apostles got ahead of God, and they shouldn't have moved on Matthias. Uh, but again, that shows you the filter with which they come to the scriptures. Um, and again, they are not rightly dividing truth from truth, as you can see there. Um, just a couple things uh, as we round out uh, chapter number one, as we come into Pentecost, uh, just uh, a couple of notes that I want to make in regards to what is about to happen. Pentecost is related. Um, that's good, Scott. <laughs> uh, commentators, some taters are more common than others. Yeah, that's true. But it's just amazing to me how that we can stand so many years removed from them and actually condemn what they did. Who are we? <laughs> I mean, these guys walked in the path of Jesus. They they sat, they ate, they ate, they laughed, they cried, you know, for, for three years with the Lord. And how can we so many years removed sit down and pass judgment on what they did? Uh, to me, it's just the ultimate in arrogance. And I've done it. I've got notes uh, to prove it. Um, yeah, angels laugh when they read men's commentaries. Uh, I think they do laugh. I, I cry when I go back and look at some of the things I, I taught in regards to this because, you know, I just taught the denominational line. I mean, um, but again, they're not, not rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, when we get in chapter number two, here's some other brain busters here. Pentecost is related to the kingdom and not to the church. Pentecost has nothing to do with the church. Um, the church could not begin nor even be revealed until the kingdom had been officially offered and rejected by the nation of Israel. Uh, so Pentecost has nothing to do with the church. And yet, you know, we've got whole denominations founded upon a faulty interpretation of what's happening here in the book of Acts. Um, all people had to be in unbelief, the Bible says, um, before, in other words, Israel had to be shut up in disobedience. I think the New American Standard says that they were in unbelief, or is it the King James says they were in unbelief in Romans 28, 32. We might as well look at it, but this had to happen first in order for, um, the church to be offered, or not the church, but the church to be born. Um, in Romans eleven twenty eight. Romans eleven twenty eight. Notice what it says here. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, they being the Jews. But as touching the election, they are beloved of the Father's sake. The election is referring to the Jews. For the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. In other words, God doesn't change his mind. 
For as ye in times past have not believed God, ye have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. The ye is referring to the Gentiles in times past did not believe God, but you've obtained mercy now because of their, the Jews, unbelief. Even so, have these also now not believed, referring to the Jews, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in, notice that, unbelief. Why? That he might have mercy upon all. You see, the Jews had to first reject the Messiah and the kingdom before the church could be born. Um, so, again, I mean, it didn't happen at Pentecost. Um, and I don't take this stuff lightly, if guys. I mean, I realize that what I'm teaching goes is totally against the grain of, you know, but it's not heresy. <laughs> it's not heresy to disagree. Uh, the church simply was not born in Acts chapter number two. Acts chapter number two had to happen so that Israel could officially receive the offer, which was given to given by Peter as promised in Matthew that he would hold the keys that what he bounds would be bound and what he loose would be loosed. Uh, and upon this rock, I'll build my church, not talking about the body of Christ, but the kingdom church. And it was rejected. So Pentecost was simply the beginning of the Jewish nation being in unbelief. Thus, they were to be temporarily, as Roman says, cast away so that the reconciliation of the world could take place. Romans eleven fifteen. Only by the removal of Israel could the world be made a recipient of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And only by the removal of the church can Israel again be the recipient of God's promises. I mean, it's just, I mean, it, 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 to me, that's just not that complicated. Um, but of course, I say that after, I don't know, 35 years of ministry. So the bottom line is that the kingdom could not be offered until there were 12 apostles who were ready to reign. That's why Peter and the others moved with such haste. The king um, had to be rejected and crucified and risen again. So the crucifixion was not an accident. He had to be crucified. He had to be rejected. He had to be crucified. He had to rise again before the kingdom could be offered. The Holy Spirit had to be given to empower them to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to the nations. So all those things had to happen first um, before the kingdom could be offered. And it did. All that happened. They chose Matthias to replace Judas. Jesus had already been rejected, crucified, and risen again. 40-day seminar. And the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out here in Acts chapter 2 to empower them. And then Peter's going to make the offer of the kingdom to the Jewish nation. So just a little backdrop there on Pentecost. What it is and what it is not. And if we'll remember that, because think about the amount of confusion. Now, I think I'm, I'm, Scott and I talked about this. The 
The ones that struggle the most with this are those who are involved in the Pentecostal movement or involved in the gifts that were the result, the sign gifts of the kingdom. Uh, I think they have the most to lose, if you will. Um, now, for those who've never really been there or done that, you know, like myself, um, I don't have that much. Uh, I mean, that's the only summation I can come up with um, um, because I just, I just never went there in my walk with the Lord. Not that I didn't want to go there. Certainly I did, but I just never went there. So it's not something that I have to struggle with. As a matter of fact, I've always looked upon it with skepticism. Um, and you could say that that's my background, being raised an independent, fundamental Baptist, <laughs> you know, cessationist. Um, so I, I do think, and I, and I do, my heart does go out to uh, brothers who have to overcome that hurdle. But if what's going on here in Acts chapter number two has nothing to do with the church, uh, then yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to have to make you go back to the drawing board. Um, so anyway, just a little backdrop there on Pentecost and that leads us to, uh, we've still got about, well, we still got about 15 minutes. Um, it leads us to chapter two, verse number one. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were in all, they were all with one accord in one place. Now notice they're still in one accord. Uh, um, and they're all still together. They're all still moving forward in God's plan. They all were there for the 40 day seminar. They're waiting for this thing to happen. They know what they need to do next. I don't think these guys are walking in fear. I don't think these guys are walking in doubt at this point. Something happened between the resurrection and the ascension that changed these guys. And now they're going to get the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is going to happen. Uh, remember, the day of Pentecost was the 50th day after the first day of the week after Passover. And of course, you can do the math. It's in Leviticus 23, 15 through 16. So it's 50 days after the first day of the week after Passover. This day was, quote, fully come only after seven, seven Sabbaths had passed not counting the Sabbath immediately following the Passover, but only those after the Feast of First Fruits, which was always on Sunday. Okay. So when it says when the day of Pentecost was fully come, this was the day of Pentecost. And notice that they are all still in one accord in one place. Now, this is where we hit some more assumptions here. Um, because <clears throat> Acts one thirteen says that they were in an upper room when they chose Matthias. However, we cannot necessarily assume that they are still in that same upper room here. Um, you know, the only insight to the place is in verse number two, uh, because when we get down in verse number two, it says that they are in a, they're, they're in a house. Um, so it lends, 
it's uh, at least I believe that they're not necessarily in the same place at this point. They're not in the upper room, but they're in a house. So, you know, that's not a doctrinal issue there, but, um, I mean, I just, I don't, I, I it, we can't necessarily assume that they're in the same place. Um, so then look at verse number two and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the house where they were sitting and they, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues as of fire and set upon each of them. Now these two verses give the physical description of the event. The next verse is going to give the, what I, what I, what I call the spiritual description of the event. Uh, the word cloven is interesting. Um, it's the word demarisio, die meaning through, meros, part. It means divided or split. So uh, cloven tongues. Now the word cloven um, is, this is interesting because the word means totally different today than it meant then. Um, the word cloven is actually the past participle of cleave. Um, in the, from the Old English, cleave means to separate. In the Middle English, during the time of the King James, it meant the exact opposite. It meant to come together. Uh, Genesis 2.24, and a man shall cleave unto his wife. So, so we've got a language thing where at one point, it means to be separated here in this text. But when you go back into Genesis, it meant to um, to stay together. So you've got uh, the Old English and the Middle English. And it just shows you how the English language has changed over a period of time. And then in verse number four, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, while we know that this event was both prophesied in, in verses 16 and 17, we are not fully able to understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Ghost, at least from this passage alone. Uh, we're, we're able to tell that an additional occurrence, which is fully related, is that they begin to speak with other tongues. But you know, we weren't there. We don't know exactly what happened. We just know that they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And I believe this was a, a one-time experience in their lives. Um, and they began to speak in tongues. Now, in the context, when it says tongues, that word dialectos, it's speaking of human languages. It's not talking about spiritual languages. Is talking about human languages. Now, almost all of the Christian church has interpreted uh, this verse to be the actual birth of the church that you and I are in. However, you'll notice here, um, there's a difference between eisegesis and exegesis, okay? Uh, eisegesis, um, is something, our exegesis is something that's drawn from the text. Eisegesis is something read into the text. Um, 
there's nothing here in these verses that says happy birthday church. Um, nothing in these verses says implicitly that this is the verse of this is the birth of the church. Instead, uh, that is eisegesis. It's being read into the text. The text simply does not say that. I believe that it will become more apparent as we make our way through that the church was not born here as you and I know it. Again, that's just simply rightly dividing, separating truth from truth. The Apostle Paul is not on the scene. The mystery has not been revealed. Um, the Apostle Paul was the first one to receive that. These guys were clueless about that. So again, to assume that the birth of the church is happening here is eisegesis. It's reading it into the text, which unfortunately is making the text say something that it doesn't necessarily say. So look at verse five. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews devout men out of every nation under heaven. Notice that the emphasis is on the Jews, devout men. Okay, devout Jews. Thus far in Acts, we have no Gentiles. Uh, these Jews were men who had come out of every nation under heaven, but were now dwelling at Jerusalem. Now listen, this is important. Though we're not told the reason for their move or why they had come to Jerusalem, a study of the historical context reveals that the Jews after the diaspora, now the diaspora, the, the, the spreading, if you will, began with the fall of the Northern Kingdom in 728 BC had began to move back to Jerusalem because of messianic expectation related to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Um, there was an anticipation that something, was, I, I don't think they were stupid as we, we think they were. Um, and again, I think the church the body of Christ, we look back on these guys like they were stupid. We look back on them like they did not know how to interpret Daniel 9 like we do. Uh, they didn't have the math like we do. Well, why did the wise people show up? You know, why did the wise guys show up? I mean, they were obviously looking to something in the Old Testament that would give them a clue as to when the Messiah would come. Also, Another interesting point is, is Simeon, and I'll, I'll show this to you. Simeon in uh, Luke 2.25, <clears throat> in Luke 2.25, and behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This is when Jesus was at the temple. And the same man was a just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Ghost was upon him and it was revealed on him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Again, I don't think these guys were as dumb as we would like to think they are. I, I, I think we in the, the church today tend to find things in the Old Testament like, you know, we knew something, we know something Peter didn't know. I mean, certainly it's possible we can know things that Peter didn't know for sure, but um, I just think we, we grossly underestimate these people. Uh, and I, and I think it's very arrogant of us to do that. Um, 
They knew what they were doing. There was something that was causing these Jews to come back to Jerusalem. Um, and again, I mean, Simeon became because he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Well, how did Simeon know that? Well, apparently Simeon, though the whole, some, the spirit told him, but, um, they knew the old Testament and I, I would probably say they know the old Testament far better than we do. Um, it's just, they don't see Christ in it like we do. Um, but they knew it. So, you know, in verse five, when it says, and there were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven, it's still talking about Jews that had been spread in the diaspora and these Jews were coming back. It is not saying that this was a whole bunch of Gentiles here. It's saying these were Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven that were coming back to Jerusalem for a reason. Now, we do know that, you know, we'll get into this later, that, you know, there were three feasts that every male had to uh, participate in, and they had to be there. Uh, but verse 5 seems to indicate something even deeper than that. These, the, there was an expectation that something was about to happen. Rome was on edge. Um, Pilate, uh, King Herod, they were on edge. Um, Again, I just think we underestimate them uh, sometimes. Um, let's see, we've probably got about maybe five more minutes here. Um, verses 6 through 11. <clears throat> and when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Again, this is dialectos. This is not an unknown angelic language going on here. And they were all amazed and they marveled, saying to one another, Behold, are not these which speak Galileans? Um, in other words, they're ignorant fishermen. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're not educated. They, they haven't studied these languages. They, they haven't traveled abroad. Um, and how hear we, every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? And, and again, this is Jews. When it says Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and the parts of Libya and Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, uh, or proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak our, in our tongues, the wonderful works of God. So these are all Jews that were born outside of Jerusalem that spoke these other languages. So actually they are coming back into Jerusalem and they are hearing these Galileans speak in their native tongues, these languages. So what happened began to be noised abroad. Uh, the term has nothing to do with the modern sense of abroad. It's more the sense of a rumor, which is known by all. In other words, this rumor began to spread of what was going on in Jerusalem. Um, the multitude here, again, is speaking of Jews. Again, what we want to do is we want to put Gentiles front and center here. And that's where we mess up. This isn't a Gentile event. The multitude that's spoken of here is referring to Jews. 
The crowd was amazed and marveled because all those filled with the Holy Ghost had begun speaking in other tongues and they were Galileans. But each man was hearing in their own native tongue wherein they were born. And note that everyone was of the Jewish faith, either naturally born or proselytes, according to verse number 10. No Gentiles. So um, I'm going to go ahead and leave it right there. And uh, next time we get together, um, we'll pick up in verse, verses 12 and 13. And um, God bless you guys. I'm, I look forward to this every week. <laughs> So uh, I know you're you're growing and going just like I am. Um, I, I have absolutely began to see the scripture in just a completely new light. Um, once you understand how to rightly divide it, it, it takes all of the confusion away. Um, and and I say this with heavy heart. I, it feels good to not have to rest a scripture to say something that I'm not completely comfortable that it's saying. And I've done that. I've been guilty of that. And I'm sure you have been too. Um, but uh, the, the right interpretation is what was said, who was it said to, and what did they understand to be said. That is the interpretation. We are dealing with Jews here. We are dealing with Jews who are about to receive the offer of the kingdom, just as they have been promised. Gentiles are not in view. Gentiles cannot be in view until the offer is rejected. So, well, God bless you.